Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And we have an extra person lurking in the background. Special guest is nicer than extra person, Joe. (laughs) I don't want to make Emily feel too welcome because, you know, she's quite a bit more popular than me. I think that is crap, and I'm more than happy to be the stranger lurking in the background. (laughs) Are you wearing a goat head? Not yet. I was going to put it on towards the end to see if you guys notice the difference. Yes! Jeez. (laughs) Well, that is a very lovely way to get into the idea that we are talking about today, which of course is Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And please stop me if I use the the, because I always want to call it the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And it bothers me so much that they take out the the. (laughs) I agree. Yes, for sure. It's a small complaint to make. So So this is based on Roberto Aguirre Sacasa's graphic novel, The Crucible, Volume 1. And then, of course, the first season of the more recent Netflix Sabrina television show, which is about to enter season two as of this Friday. So anyone who got very excited that we might be talking about Melissa Joan Hart, sorry to disappoint. I was among the disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I not surprised? You love a talking cat. I sure do. Oh my God, that is such a missed opportunity in this. Whatever. Anyway, fine. We'll talk about it later. (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps before we get to news, Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about uh, who you are. Yeah. Now the pressure's on. (laughs) I am Emily Vanzela. I am a co-host on the Dead Ringers podcast, and I'm just kind of a general all-around horror nerd. I love films. I love writing and talking about films. I've written stuff for Daily Dead and Bloody Disgusting and Grimm Magazine, among others, and it's just something that kind of has been in my bones since I was a kid, and I love seeing how the genre continues to explore and change and take on different stories and different storytelling opportunities. Which makes you a perfect person to come and guest on this particular episode because you have not only read the graphic novel, but your wealth and knowledge of horror is going to be a great asset because this TV series in particular is loaded with all kinds of fun references that I'm more than likely to forget, so... And that I definitely didn't get, so... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Brenna is... More representative of the book people who are maybe (laughs) less horror. And Emily, you will help to represent the horror side of the conversation. I'll do my best. (laughs) So as always, let's begin with a bit of news. Brenna, do you have anything you want to kick off? I do. I'm foregoing my news in favor of a request this week. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, so this episode is airing on April 2nd, which is the day before my birthday. And so I am using my news time today to ask that our amazing listeners take this opportunity of my birthday, my 36th birthday, ladies and gentlemen, to rate and review our show on on their (laughs) podcast catcher of choice. And as an awesome bonus thing. I signed up for this thing this week, Joe. I meant to text you about it, but I forgot. It crawls all of the Apple iTunes podcast networks around the world because you know how we can only see the Canadian ones and sometimes the US ones. Mm -hmm. So this lets us see all of them. So like that one listener in Iceland, I can see you and I know that you haven't reviewed our podcast yet. (laughs) (laughs) Why does it sound so threatening when you say it? (laughs) I added a laugh. It's fine. Anyway, so that's what I want to use my news time for today. An unselfconscious plea to hop onto, especially iTunes, and rate the show and review it because I know you're out there, listeners, and uh, we want to know not just that we're awesome, we know that, but also what you like about the show, what's working for you, what you'd like to hear more of, all that kind of stuff. So it would be really useful information for us to have. So yeah, that's that's my news this week, Joe. Very nice. Mm-hmm. I like the plug. Mm-hmm. It came off as very sincere. <laughs> Can I be the first person to wish Brenna a happy birthday? Absolutely. Thank you. Yay. I appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful day and get lots of reviews. I do too. That is all I want for my birthday this year. 
And hopefully, maybe fewer toddler meltdowns. Oh, my goodness. It's been a day, ladies and gentlemen. Emily, do you have any YA news of any kind that you might be interested in sharing? I do not, but I'm curious to see if you do. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. You can tell Emily's a pro at this because she's like, "Mm mm-hmm, and deflect right back to you. (laughs) So I do. I have something that's very on brand for Brenna. Ooh. And I'm happy to have caught this. Originally, I was going to talk about the depiction of teenagers in the third season of Santa Clarita Diet. At the time of this, it would have just come out on Netflix, but it was a bit of a weak, you know, it was kind of like grasping at straws. So I'm happy to have gotten an email right before we started recording about a brand new made-for-Netflix movie, Brenna. Ooh. <laughs> and it stars your favorite... Noah Centineo. Oh. Yeah. So this is apparently dropping in just over a week on April 12th. It's called The Perfect Date. This does sound up my alley. Go on. Right. So here's the logline. It's Brooks Radigan. Oh, that name. That is awful. Played by Noah Centineo. Has the academic chops to get into his dream Ivy League school, but what he's missing is an outstanding extracurricular and the money. When he seizes on an opportunity to make some extra cash by posing as the boyfriend of a self-assured combat boot-loving girl named Celia Lieberman, Laura Moreno, who I don't recognize at all, he finds he has a knack for being the perfect stand-in. Together with his programmer friend Murph, Odysseus Georgiasis, and I apologize if I mispronounced his name, Brooks launches an app selling himself as a plus one for all occasions. Along the way, he meets the girl of his dreams, Camilla Mendez. But when business starts to boom, Brooks must reassess everything he was once sure of and also find love. Spoilers. Um, this sounds like somebody like mashed together <laughs> Easy A and uh, To All the Boys I've Loved Before, and I'm yeah. into it. Yeah. <laughs> So it looks like it's very much coasting on Centineo's charms. But, uh, you know, it could be a fun time for something. I don't think it's based on anything, though. I think it's an original film. Cool. Well, I'm into it. Oh, um, I'm just looking because you've mentioned it now. And I I just wanted to look up who um, Laura Moreno is. Because I've seen her in a ton of stuff, but nothing is... Oh, she's the sister of the main character from Switched at Birth. That's why she looks so familiar. Only you would that. <laughs> Switched at birth was very charming. And guess what, Joe? I have exciting news for you. What's that? It's based on a novel. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, scrap all of our plans. We're going to do this <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> Amazing. That indigenous book you wanted to cover? No, now we have to cover this Noah Centineo movie. <laughs> Maybe we should just change this podcast to Noah Centineo Originals on Netflix. Jeez. Emily, I'm sorry you had to be here for this. <laughs> I'm kind of loving it. And I feel like Netflix would keep you in the podcast business for a good long while if you decided to go that route. Right? I think so, too. Oh, I'm just seeing one of the, um, somebody else in this film is actually, here's a tie-in. She plays Veronica Lodge on Riverdale. So mm-hmm. now we're back to the Archie Comics universe and we can talk about Sabrina. Beautiful. See what Ladies, I did there? your segues <laughs> today. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> uh, so, Brenna, what, pray tell, is Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Volume 1, The Crucible, all about? It is not about Sabrina from the 60s Archie comics. I will tell you that right now. Um, Okay, so (laughs) Chilling Adventures of Sabrina does tell the story of Sabrina Spellman, a much beloved teenage half-witch who lives in the town of Greendale. And if you are a fan of Archie comics, you will know that Greendale is the neighboring town to Riverdale. It's creepier (laughs) than Riverdale. But maybe not in the TV universe, actually. So in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Volume 1, Sabrina is on the cusp of a major event for any young witch, which is her 16th birthday, which is when she must choose whether or not to pledge herself to being a full witch or pursuing a mortal life. And of course, for Sabrina, the complicating factor is her boyfriend, Harvey. So as she's in the midst of trying to make this important decision, which I think importantly in the comic is a free choice for her. She can choose either way, although she feels like she wants to follow in the footsteps of her aunts, but also she's very curious about the mortal world. While this decision is going on, she also has like high school (laughs) to deal with, which is Mm -hmm. also, you know, 
a thing. And one of the complicating factors at high school is the fact that Madame Satan, which is a very subtle name, um, has returned from hell. She was the former romantic interest of Sabrina's father before he left her to pursue a relationship with a mortal, which is why Sabrina is only half-witch. Her mother was not a witch. And um, Sabrina's trapped in the fact that Madame Satan wants revenge and has returned and can take on corporeal forms and do all kinds of like really gross and gruesome stuff to the people around Sabrina. So the major characters, I guess, are Sabrina, our main character, and her aunts, Hilda and Zelda. And then Harvey, her boyfriend, who is not aware of their witchly nature until he comes upon them in the woods at the initiation ceremony, baptism ceremony thing, whatever, and he is killed by the other witches. And the volume concludes with Sabrina doing like a resurrection ritual to resurrect Harvey from the dead. But unfortunately, it's not Harvey who is resurrected, but her dad. And that is where the volume ends, thankfully, because gross. (laughs) (laughs) The other super important character, obviously, is Salem the cat. He is my favorite character. I don't understand why it's not a book about Salem. Um... Did I leave anything out? That is, that's where I'm ending my plot summary. Well, there is a guest appearance by both Betty and Veronica. Oh, yeah! That's true. Betty and Veronica, and we get, oh, uh, foreshadowing bingo, but we've got some not-so-secret Shakespeare in the fact that there's all kinds of Macbeth witchy references with Betty and Veronica, who are both performing in a rendition of Macbeth at Riverdale High and also part of the Riverdale Coven, who therefore allow uh, Sabrina to resurrect Harvey. At least she thinks she's resurrecting Harvey at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would also add that we have Ambrose, who is Sabrina's cousin. Oh, yeah, that's right. And according to Wikipedia, he comes to live with them from the old country. And he can't leave the house, which is similar to what happens in the TV show. But in the graphic novel, he has two cobra familiars. So all witches and warlocks get a what is called a familiar, which is an animal who assists them. And in this case, he has two cobra snakes, Neg and Nagina. Nagina, I think. I was honestly like Harry Potter and Harry (laughs) Potter. (laughs) Yeah, so the other interesting thing of note is, of course, that the graphic novel takes place in the 60s. Yes, and it's really aesthetically beautiful comic. It almost looks like it's been colored with pencil crayon. And what I like about the layout of the pages is that the color sort of like smudges into the margin, which gives the whole thing this really like a sort of 1960s feel and that it feels a little bit unpolished which was kind of typical of comics of that period but also it feels very ethereal because of that sort of smudgy edged quality to all the pages that i really like there's a very nice tactical tactile sorry experience of reading the comic mm-hmm. and i think it's interesting if i'm not mistaken i had some kind of special edition version of this first volume and in it, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa thanks his artist, Robert Hack, because originally they were just going to have him do the covers, but then they couldn't find the right artist to do the art. So they asked Robert Hack to do it, and then they couldn't find a good colorer. So they actually asked Robert Hack to also color his own work, and he had never done either of those two things before. So Yeah, he was only a cover artist. Yeah, it's interesting how well it turned out. Yeah, it's really, really beautiful. And I think that the style of it also lends itself well to the fact that this is largely a pretty serious story. There are some humor moments, but (laughs) it's not nearly on the level of the Archie comics of old and the stuff that it came from. It's kind of, it's forging its own path and being more of a serious horror book. It's interesting too, because it's, so the the pedigree of this particular volume is that it came out of so Berto Aguirre Sacasa, he created this Afterlife with Archie comic, which was freaking fantastic. Joe knows well that zombies and horror and anything to do with scary things are not my jam at all. Hence your love of the cat. <laughs> That's hence my love of the cat. But Afterlife with Archie was a phenomenal 
comic and it was really it came out in 2013 right around the time that a lot of comic scholars are calling like the little archie renaissance that we've been in uh since the early 2010s right because it was an example of what john goldwater as a as a publisher of archie was willing to do so the goldwaters have been in control of the archie name like forever and over the years they've made some pretty conservative choices with the comic and the properties around it and so Afterlife with Archie was like a really big signal that the times were shifting. So that and also the death with Archie, the last issue of Life with Archie, where Archie actually gets killed. These were two big signal moments. Like, actually, it's fair game. Everything is on the table for this universe now. And in Afterlife with Archie, I think it's issue six that Sabrina appears. And it was from the massive success of that that Chilling Adventures of Sabrina came about. So this was really part of a huge shift on the part of the property itself to try to remake and reimagine what could be done. Afterlife with Archie is far more of a pastiche. It's very funny. It's dark and creepy and scary and frightening and terrifying. Um, But it is also in moments really quite funny. And it's quite conscious of the way it's using really familiar characters in really bizarre and strange ways. Mm. So as I say, it's, it's got a strong sense of pastiche about it. That's really absent, I I find, in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. So I agree with Emily. Like, this is a really serious comic. And for me, that made it, for me and the kind of reader I am, that made it a less successful title than Afterlife with Archie. But I definitely, I appreciate anything that kind of keeps these iconic characters relevant. And I definitely think that this is a comic that does that. I'm interested. Emily, do you read other graphic novels or comics? I do, but... There's a lot more, obviously, that I haven't read than I have. I kind of go in waves where comics are the thing that I want to take in and it's the medium that I want to consume. And then I'll go through a dry spell for a few months. So I'm not terribly consistent with my consumption. (laughs) When you do dip into the foray, do you have a tendency to read horror graphic novels at all? I do read some horror. I'm a huge fan of Joe Hill's Lock and Key series, but I also find myself being drawn to kind of lighter, more YA fare. Like I was big into the Gem comics and I read the Rat Queen series, which is a little Uh, bit like more adult, but still light and fun. My God, I love the Rat Queens. Isn't it Probably just spoke to my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's interesting. So I I tend to read a lot of superhero graphic novels, but I will read a couple of horror ones. You know, I did The Walking Dead. I don't love Robert Kirkman as a narrative driver. This feels very on point to me for what horror graphic novels are about. And I found it interesting that Roberto references some of his inspirations as more obviously witch-driven films, but also kind of possession narratives. And I think the thing to me that makes this particular property really interesting is that 60s setting, because it does make it feel completely different from everything else. Mm -hmm. But I do agree with you, Brenna. I think this is less accessible than afterlife with Archie then obviously the main comic that is uh, being drawn by Wade right now Mm -hmm. which is you know the impetus for the Riverdale television series to a certain extent yeah and there's two other comics in the Archie horror line there's Jughead the Hunger which is comic series about Jughead that positions him as a a werewolf werewolf yeah and that's the idea that like because Jughead is always hungry right so this is the idea where that's coming from Mm -hmm. and then Vampironica which obviously. It's about Veronica as a vampire. And both of those also have a lot more humor. I think Chilling Adventures is the one sort of serious straight line horror Mm -hmm. title in the in the series, which actually makes a lot of sense because she's the least well known character of all of the characters they're pulling from here. And so there's a lot less investment in an, like an already existing archetype of that character. So I think that it makes more sense that if you were going to go straight down the line with one of them, it would be that one. You have so much history and humor attached to all these other characters that I think it would be harder. Yeah, I don't know that you would get as much bang for your buck by subverting things like you do by turning Veronica into a vampire or Jughead into a werewolf. If you don't have the humor. Yeah. 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 Definitely. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think that those comics kind of more had 
the necessity for the humor, I think, mm-hmm. whereas this one, you can get away without it. Yes, I agree. And apparently there's one that I have not read yet, which is Blossoms 666, which is about Cheryl and Jason Blossom, who are the very creepy twins. (laughs) So I'm pretty, I haven't checked that one out, but now I kind of want to. I love that Cheryl has become this new iconic character (laughs) in the new series. I know, I know. Okay, so what did we think about the narrative of this first volume? Obviously, it was put out in single issues and then compiled into a volume, like a lot of graphic novels are. But I'm intrigued to know what your thoughts were on how it positions the story and how it gives backstory to different people, because that to me was really fascinating. And going back and revisiting this, because I'd read it when it first came out, I was almost a little bit more annoyed at the TV show for not embracing some of the kind of flashback Mm. opportunities and the alternative ways of telling story. But I'm interested to see what you two think. Well, we've talked before on the show about comics and their unique way to play with time, right? And I think Aguirre's Sacasa really understands that. Like, he knows what he's doing here. And those moments where he's playing with time, I'm thinking of two particular moments. One, when we're flashing back and forth between Sabrina's childhood and the decision that she's in sort of the midst of making, like understanding to what extent she has free choice to become a witch or not in that moment. And then he does the same thing with space when we flash between Greendale and Riverdale, between Sabrina and between what Betty and Veronica are up to. And in both Mm -hmm. cases, I mean, to me, that's just the best of what comics can do in terms of playing with time and space, in terms of not being tied to a linear narrative, and in terms of allowing the reader to kind of bounce around to read what they want to make sense of time and space as they want. And in both cases in the comic, it has a really great, almost unsettling quality your expectations of what's going to come next are always being subverted in the comic in a way that I think is really successful even for a scaredy cat such as myself. (laughs) Yeah, I like that the action in this is more or less geographically fixed to the house, the woods, the school, and then the occasional detour into more familiar territory in Riverdale because I think it helps to ground unfamiliar readers to say, you don't have to keep track of a million different characters. There's really about five or six of them. But we've also got these anchors of Betty and Veronica showing up. And, you know, I love the fact that they're witches, but they're also still the catty Veronica (laughs) and Betty that we know and love, where they're like, we're only doing these things to like make Archie jealous, or we're hoping to find some boys outside of Riverdale. And you're like, okay, that can be an anchor, I think, for people who maybe don't know Sabrina or who are a little less comfortable with some of this direction. But it's also really doing a great job of just employing some very traditional YA tropes, right? We've got coming of age. We've got an orphaned girl who's trying to balance a unusual home life with a school life and a relationship. Well, and the circumscribed location that you're talking about too, Joe, right? Like teenagers typically have a geographically small range of experience, right? Typically. (laughs) And that's true for Sabrina too, even though she's a witch, right? She's got all these magical powers and she still goes like homeschool woods, homeschool woods, right? And just for reference, that was not homeschool woods. (laughs) I don't know. They kind of are like a homeschool woods. (laughs) <laughs> she learns a lot you're there. not wrong well, there's that homeschool <laughs> lesson right <laughs> but you're right though there's the scene when ambrose shows up and she's like yeah well nothing ever happens in greendale so you do get the understanding that her world is small even though like conceptually she's a witch and it's much larger than the average teenager mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i love that a statement that's so innocuous like that is contrasted by you know images of her aunt going after uh you know some bossy girl and appearing as a giant (laughs) spider to scare her it's like nothing happens around here except oh yeah there's a woman without a face over there and there's a giant spider you know that's just it's it's tuesday yep i like the way they Mm -hmm. lean into things that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see i mean in any big comic like this but like I'm thinking about the cannibalism, okay? That's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the cannibalism. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool, like Hilda and Zelda are eating. Oh, everybody's eating people. Oh, we eat people. Oh, people. <laughs> in, and it's so funny how in the adaptation, they really try to play that down. It's like, oh, well, yeah, a little bit of human blood would be helpful for the sacrifice. It's like, no, no, in the book, you ate him. You ate that man. <laughs> and you enjoyed it. You had you no loved problems it. with it whatsoever. <laughs> it was not gross. It was not gross. 
I agree with you, Brendan, that there isn't a lot of humor, but there is a lot of dark. I hesitate to say comedy because it's not like you're reading this and laughing out loud. But, you know, Ambrose's insinuation that any of the bodies that are coming through the funeral home are not actually being buried or treated. They are ending up on Hilda and Zelda's plate. Like, it's very understated. There is a lot of cannibalism (laughs) in here, but they're not aggressively saying it until they freaking kill off Sabrina's boyfriend. Which, P.S., why is that not in the TV I show? I know. Yes. The stakes in this book are real. And it was really frustrating to then turn around and think about the TV oh, show man. again. And I watched episode one and she's, in the book, she's like, she's trying to decide between a witchy existence that like still kind of scares her a little bit, but is ultimately where she feels at home. And then like the possibilities of a mortal existence. But in the TV show, it's like, give up all your witch powers for this mediocre white guy. And I'm just like, (laughs) are you kidding me? So not worth it. (laughs) Not worth it. He's not even that cute, Sabrina. And you have all of these magic abilities. Why would you ever consider giving that up? It makes no sense in the book, like at, or it makes no sense in the TV show. Like in the book, you can see why she's hemming and hawing, but you also ultimately know that she's A, making a choice out of her own free will, which I I don't understand that change in the adaptation. Like I don't understand what we gain from that. And B, yeah, this whole idea that Harvey could ever be enough to give up like supernatural powers for is just bizarre. Should we, sorry, should we play the trailer so we can, I was going to say maybe, yeah, okay. In the town of Greendale, where it always feels like Halloween, there lived a girl who was half witch, half mortal, who, on her 16th birthday, would have to choose between two worlds, the witch world of her family and the human world of her friends. And that girl is me. Are you willing to forsake the path of light and follow the path of night? It's very tempting to It's very tempting. I can't do this. You must. That's down to Lila Sabrina. You're going to die, half-breed. Girls, girls. Let's not be catty bitches. Hmm? It's just that you've grown up before my very eyes. You're a rebel, Spellman. That's how I like my witches. Right. You turned into the prettiest. I'm not an evil person. But these are desperate times. Sabrina Spellman and I will not sign it away. All right, so let's dig into this Netflix TV adaptation. So it's also from the same guy, Aguirre Sacasa is also the executive producer and showrunner of Riverdale. And then based on that success, based on the success of this graphic novel, Originally, Sabrina was going to be a sequel or a spinoff of Riverdale, and then it ended up getting sold to Netflix. Presumably, it's done quite well because it's actually been renewed for four seasons. So we're about to go into season two this week, but there's a guarantee of at least two more seasons after this. And this does purport to be based on the graphic novel series, but there's quite a lot of liberties at play. So we'll just quickly run down the cast and then we can dig in. So title character Sabrina is played by Kiernan Shipka from Mad Men. So a lot of people knew her as a fairly well-established young actress, but this is obviously a huge role for her because she's never been the lead. Harvey, (laughs) our bland boyfriend, is played by Ross Lynch, who is a former Disney boy. But of course, horror people will also know him uh, Emily, help me out. Is it my friend Dahmer? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. Is that based on the comic too? Yes, it is. And is fantastic. And he is amazing in it. 
that's two horror comics I've read then. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to talk disturbing, that is, that would be a hard watch for mm-hmm. me, Bernard, not going <laughs> to Okay, we've got the two ants. So Hilda is played by British actress Lucy Davis, who UK fans would know from their version of The Office. And then, of course, we've got Zelda, sorry, is played by Miranda Otto, who is, I want to say she's from New Zealand, but that could just be because she's from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) There is a lot of crossover in that Venn diagram. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also because her accent is inscrutable. I cannot figure out what she's doing with it. So it's hard to give her a specific breakdown. Quickly moving on. Ambrose is played by Chance Perdomo, who I didn't recognize before this. I'm not sure if either one of you two I knew did. him from a Midsummer Murders episode because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> you're not old. You're turning 36 <laughs> and you want people to use your birthday wisely. <laughs> That's true. And then uh, in this universe, we are calling Madame Satan... She takes on the guise of one of the faculty members named Mary Wardwell, and she's played by British actress Michelle Gomez, who fans of Doctor Who would recognize as the female incarnation of the master. No? Crickets? <laughs> I Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for like a yoo-hoo because she's the freaking best she on this is show. Very good. She's fantastic. She's my favorite actress on the show. Yeah, and then we've got Father Faustus Blackwood is played by Richard Coyle. And then we've got the three weird sisters. Really, the most important one is Prudence, and she's played by Taddy Gabrielle. And I would argue she's the other standout on the show. Can I also mention Bronson Pinochet as the principal? Because I think he's pretty great. Right. I mean, I hate the principal, his character and everything about him. But I think Bronson Pinochet (laughs) is really good at being hateable. Yes. (laughs) He plays jerk really, really well. He so nails it. All the way back to the Langoliers, people. (laughs) Yeah, so that's our long protracted cast summary. So, Brenna, how many episodes did you end up getting through? Two and a half, Joe. Okay, good. This, I mean, it's a lot harder for you. You you have a child. You have a full-time job. Well, this is the thing, too. It's like some things I can have on while... My little one is up, and this is not one of those things. (laughs) That's probably a wise decision. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. (laughs) Scarring my child for our podcast is really not on my high, not high on my list. Things to do. (laughs) And Emily, how many have you seen? I have seen all of them. Okay. I have seen the entirety of the first season, but I did not watch the Christmas special, because I don't believe in Christmas specials. (laughs) (laughs) That is perfectly fine. It's like a lot of Christmas specials where it's just kind of a one-off and it doesn't really do anything to further the plot. Yeah, I had heard complaints, so I didn't make an effort to rush and wrap it up. I was telling Emily before we started off air that I was very excited when this was announced. I was very much looking forward to it. I thought the marketing of it, like the trailers and the promos, I thought was excellent. I loved the look and the aesthetic of it. And then when I finally sat down to watch it after it came out in the fall... I was very quickly underwhelmed to a certain degree. So I made it through six episodes and then I had to stop because I kept getting really, really frustrated with the storytelling. So I ended up catching up in time for this. And I'm glad I did because to be honest, I had stopped right when it started to get really good, which is around episode seven. (laughs) So Brenna, what were your Mm -hmm. thoughts on the episodes that you did watch? I don't dislike it, but I guess, okay, so I'm, I'm going to do like a scattershot of observations and then you can stop me if one of them is interesting to you. Okay. So the first is that as much as I like Lucy Davis, it's funny, I did not watch that much of the way back Sabrina the Teenage Witch TV series and like, I don't remember much of it at all, except that I remember Carolyn Ray in that role and I oh, really right. just yeah. feel like, I like Lucy Davis, but they make her the sort of the comic relief such as there is in the tv series and i don't actually think she plays that very well and i actually found myself wishing caroline ray was in that role which is odd because normally i don't notice or care about who's cast in what but for some reason (laughs) i just did not find her particularly persuasive as aunt hilda otherwise hmm, it's interesting we've had a really good run on this show of graphic content that's been adapted to screen in a way that is really 
really keeps the style. And I didn't find that to be the case here. I didn't think that the visual signature of the show was particularly interesting, which was a shame given how beautiful the comic is and how effective I think the comic is at portraying tone through its own visual signature. So for me, aesthetically, I didn't love it. And I think that might have to do with the fact that it looks so much like Riverdale to me. Yeah. There's no sort of tonal difference between the way Riverdale is shot or even, frankly, the locations used because they're all in my backyard here. <laughs> and so to me, there's, there's just too much visual crossover between the two series that I don't think works. Now, part of that is, I think, because Riverdale is shot way darker <laughs> than it needs to be. And so there's probably not a lot of place to move on that stuff. But I just thought that there was so much stylistically going on in the comic that doesn't translate to the screen very effectively, and that I found to be a disappointment because as someone who's not super into the genre, I felt like that was really what I was looking for, was that aesthetic to be replicated, and and when it wasn't, I was kind of like, meh. Well, let's dig into that. Sure. Yeah. Emily, what are your thoughts? I agree with Being how much I love the art style that's at play in the book and the way it helps to establish its setting and the world that we're playing in, I absolutely agree that I think they missed an opportunity with the series. And I think that they were intentionally trying to link it to Riverdale just because there's the opportunity of so much crossover from the fans and the audience. I get why they did that, but I think that it impacted the series in a negative way for me just because it wasn't holding up to what the graphic novel offered. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I imagine that if people hadn't read the graphic novel and they were just tuning in for the television show, they'd probably say, oh, it looks really opulent. It looks really expensive. You know, I think the set design feels very rich and textured. But at the same time, you're both absolutely right. It honestly looks exactly like Riverdale, maybe even a smidge darker, which is not a good thing (laughs) visually speaking like there are so many episodes where if something is happening even remotely near a shadow you can't see a freaking thing on the screen like trying to watch Mm -hmm. the show during the daytime is a legitimate nightmare and then the visual thing that drives me bonkers especially in the early couple of episodes when you're adjusting to the look of it is the odd decision to put vaseline around the edges so that you end up with a kind of iris aesthetic where the attention visually is centered almost like a small circle in the middle of the screen and everything else just makes you think that you've got cataracts (laughs) and i did not enjoy that I don't even know why they would do that choice. Yeah, I don't know why that was. (laughs) We enjoy seeing the entire screen. I mean, if you're using that to make a certain point or kind of bring across a certain thought, then great. But it feels like it was being a little bit abused. Yeah, every outdoor scene, I think, features it, which is very problematic in these early episodes where so much of the action is taking place in the dark woods. (laughs) Do either of you watch Riverdale or are you either of you remotely up to date on Riverdale? I'm a little bit behind, but I do watch it and I enjoy it. So I'm a handful of episodes. No, sorry. I was going to say I stopped watching in season two, so (laughs) I'm quite behind. I'm a handful of episodes behind, but one of the ways in which I found the visuals confusingly overlapping is in this season of Riverdale, we have this whole thing about this like game that they're playing and there's like a goat headed like monster man creature thing that is puppet mastering the whole thing and the extent to which he's one of the other characters or not we don't know anyway whatever but Riverdale he looks exactly like the goat-headed things that show up in Sabrina but like they're being used in completely different ways and I found it so confusing because I was like is this a tie to Riverdale or is this just are there just a lot of goat-headed creatures in the woods between Greendale and Riverdale and they all serve different functions like that is confusing and I would like to propose a moratorium (laughs) if you are producing more than one television series you're only allowed to bust out the goat head once Right. It's really, like, pick, it's genuinely pick one confusing. show you only get one goat head yeah do something else for the other one we believe in you 
Because in one show, the goat head is like Satan-ish, sort of. But in the other show, the goat head is selling jingle jangle to children. And I don't know <laughs> which one it's supposed to be at any given time. I found that like, I am being funny, but I also genuinely was confused as to whether or not I was supposed to be seeing a connection between those two things or not. And I don't think that's what you want from your audience. And I think originally you were meant to, and that would make sense if this show had been produced for the CW as originally intended. But the minute that it was sold off to Netflix, like I'm actually very interested to see if in the second season they will do a visual course correction and try to distinguish it a little bit more from Riverdale. I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be no based on the trailers that I've seen for season two. But it would be a good opportunity to say, this is a show for a different network. We do want it to stand on its own. Because as far as I know, I don't know that there will be opportunities to do a crossover because these properties are now owned by different places. Yeah. Sure, they're executive produced by the same person. But that doesn't mean that you get to have your CW show and your Netflix show meet somewhere in the middle. Like, Netflix doesn't do that. Yeah. I mean, uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa has talked a lot about his imagined crossovers. Like, there's one he's heard about, like, the kids in Riverdale, like, find out about a haunted house in Greendale, and they're going to go and, like, check it out, and then it ends up being Sabrina's house. And he, he was still saying that, like, as recently as the fall. But you're right. Like, they're owned by different people, and... I don't see how that's ever going to happen. <laughs> but he keeps talking about it, so I don't know. So he's excited for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's like, hey, folks, I've got two shows. Please watch both. They might cross over at some point. <laughs> Did you guys hear that the Satanic Temple sued Chilling Adventures of Sabrina? Yeah. Yes. Which is just free publicity, baby. Because you are not going to win that. <laughs> In fact, they've, they have come to a quote-unquote amicable settlement, which is hilarious because the idea of the Satanic Temple having an amicable settlement makes me laugh because it makes me smile. I like it. It's nice. Anyway, but it was, if anybody's curious, it was over the use of the goat head. Yes. Which they felt was a direct copy of their own statue and portrayed the temple in an inaccurate and derogatory way. <laughs> that was a long shot to begin with. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, are you under the impression that you guys are the only people who put goat heads on? Because I, I know from watching Riverdale that lots of people put goat heads on. <laughs> it's very well established at this point. <laughs> Well, I'm interested. So I do think one of the more unique ways that the show in particular is engaging with this is they don't really address Christianity all that often, but the way that they talk about the Church of Night is almost the same as what quote-unquote regular people would talk about in terms of their religion. Oh, yeah. Like, think about when they're in court and Hilda or Zelda is praying, and it's basically just the Lord's Prayer with the words changed. I think it's a very odd decision. I mean, you can see glimpses of it in the graphic novel. And I guess I'm not sure exactly what the point is of doing this. Well, I think, mark. I mean, with, with the witches, <laughs> the concept of the witches as like being married to Satan in the way that nuns are married to Christ, mm -hmm. I find kind of interesting. I mean, sort of this like, this subverted nunnery kind of concept of witchcraft which only works in the tv series because in the book again there's like this element of free choice in the book that that sabrina doesn't have in the tv series and that's a really important distinction between the two so this idea of being kind of tied to and married to has this weird rapey like, yeah, are you well, gonna say yeah. rapey vibe because when i was watching the tv show i was like so yeah. we're really going into this 16 year old must be a virgin must be totally pure and clean signing her name over while wearing like the all-white wedding dress yeah except it's a night slip so it just looks uncomfortably sexualized <laughs> Well, and the way yeah. that that and then enables them to like blame her for like leading Satan on in the court trial. Like, yeah, it's all really horrific. But like, so is a lot of that language around not early Catholicism, but like 1800s Catholicism and and nunneries and why troubled young women were sent there, right? Like this, this language is echoing a particular version of Catholicism in particular, for reasons that aren't clear to me, like it's not a criticism of, it doesn't seem to be a satire of, and it doesn't seem to be making like a social point. 
So I don't know why they're doing it. Don't get me wrong. But I do think it's it's intentional. Yeah. And I think maybe part of it is just partially to give the audience like a grounding point. Like even if you didn't grow up in a Christian household, Christianity permeates so much of our culture that you're kind of familiar with, with the rituals and with the concepts. So when you're looking at a satanic religion, inverting that directly kind of gives the audience more of a starting point to move forward with. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? It does make sense, it actually. Does, yeah. yeah. It is fascinating, though, right? Because, I mean, it's a young adult show, and it's got witches in it. So obviously, there's a certain amount of sexual energy and interest in engaging sex. But there's also very little at the same time. Like, I know that we're doing a bit of pastiche with like what time period are we we've got cars from the 60s we've got somewhat modern looking clothes sabrina literally doesn't own a pair of pants that covers her ankles so that's very like 70s 80s and can i just say like i don't understand why that choice was made at all because i feel like they should have leaned fully into the 1960s thing because even if the eventual intention in the beginning was to cross over with Riverdale, and so they're borrowing from that temporal um, mm-hmm. signature of Riverdale, I thought that the whole point of that temporal signature in Riverdale is that only Riverdale is trapped in that weird timeless space. So I don't understand why Greendale would also be trapped in that weird timeless space. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me as a borrowing from that universe. Mm. I really would have preferred them to just make it a period piece. I think it would have worked a lot better. Yeah, I mean, visually, that would have given it some really iconic signatures. Like, you Mm -hmm. would have been able to say, look at this interesting show. And also, you cast an actress who is most well-known for her role on Mad Men, which is (laughs) set in the frickin' 60s. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of odd decisions. That's also my roundabout way of coming back to... Brenna, you wouldn't know this, but there's an episode that happens later in this season. It's, I think, number seven. Yeah, it's called Feast of Feasts, and it's their take on a Thanksgiving tradition. And they basically sacrifice and eat a witch. Oh, like you do. Yeah, as you would. And it comes down to either it's going to be Sabrina or it's going to be Prudence. And it ends up being prudence. And as a result, it's kind of like a lottery kind of deal where you get a day that's all to you. And you have a servant who has to do everything that you want, who, of course, ends up being Sabrina. So prudence can boss Sabrina around and it's lovely. And Taddy Gabrielle just absolutely sells the heck out of it's like kind of her big episode. But there's a scene in it where Sabrina walks in on her and she's having what is it? A fivesome, Emily? I think five. Sure. I'll go with five. Might have been six. Yeah, like she's bedded down with the other two weird sisters. Like she's got Ambrose's boyfriend Luke in there and the other hot guy from the school whose name I can't remember right now. Is he Nick? He might be Nick. He might be Nick. Yes, it's Nick. Yeah. He can be Nick. Yeah, because, of course, we're going to be leaning into a love affair in the second season. But it's just so odd to me that the show is doing this push-pull between having Sabrina have the most chaste relationship with her milquetoast boyfriend. And then, if you're a witch, you've got to be pure and innocent. And then, I guess, the minute that you pledge your soul to the Dark Lord, you get to be engaged in fivesomes? Yeah, it's, it seems like as soon as you sign the book, it's just all sex all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Why has she decided to stay with Harvey again? I don't <sighs> know. <laughs> yeah, no He's not going to have Lynch. a witchy fivesome. No. It seems unlikely. Unlikely. I have two main issues with the television series. One is that these episodes are way too long for what they're actually doing. I find the storytelling is exceedingly drawn out and it really needs to be cut down. But that's like my criticism of 90% of Netflix television shows. So that's okay. The other issue is I actually find Sabrina herself to be really boring. Mm Mm-hmm. Her brand of social justice is just really shallow and kind of annoying, like aggravatingly so, where 
<laughs> like the whole series turns on her just being unwilling to listen to anybody else's opinion or even attempt to understand like hey there's a tradition and she's just like well i don't like that because feminism <laughs> it feels like it's written by a man for a teenage girl to then project out into the world and it doesn't work for me i'm not sure if i'm overstepping <laughs> No, not at all. No, I, 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 I think completely. that, yeah, I think that that kind of nails it right on the head because I, uh, I like that that stuff is in the show, but I feel like it's not at all refined to what it should be. It feels to me like it's written by, you know, that animated gif of Steve Buscemi being like, what's up, fellow kids? <laughs> <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. It's It feels like a 40-year-old dude's approximation of what would matter to a socially conscious teenage girl. And shockingly, like, it's not that accurate. <laughs> yeah, like, I did see some, a couple of people criticizing it, saying, you know, kids don't talk this way. Kids aren't this socially engaged or this active on issues of race and gender and that kind of stuff, and which I disagree with. Yep. I think there's mm -hmm. a history of young adult, both literature and television, that maybe heightens the way that teenagers talk, but I think it doesn't belittle them either. And I think that there's a, a decent job of that here. I find the way it negotiates these really sensitive, interesting, topical subjects to not be very interesting. It's so after-school special at times, like oh, if we can't get the high school football team to stop sexually assaulting people, I'm going to create a women's lib group that's called Wicca. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> and it doesn't go anywhere, right? Right. That doesn't become an interesting subplot in the rest of the season. It's just like, well, we've got these human characters who are so boring. They pale in comparison to the really interesting witches, but we have to have this conflict of Sabrina being torn between her witch life and her human life. So what are we going to have these characters do? Oh. Book club. Book club. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that's the really frustrating part for me is you have these episodic moments of this really clunky feminism. But at the same time, it feels like within the confines of the story, we have this religion that is in a lot of ways very matriarchal on the surface level, but it's led by a ton of men. Yes. So ultimately, I'm waiting for the series to eventually like make its big, big, big arc of we're going to have to tackle this nasty patriarchy so that the women can have the equality that they deserve in this religion and in this life. But we keep getting distracted by book club. <laughs> mm -hmm. And sleep demon who gives us all nightmares because we watched that one episode of Buffy. I love that one episode of Buffy. Yeah, it's not Buffy. as good here. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a shame, too, because I think in the comic, hmm, I mean, obviously, this religion is at its core patriarchal. Everyone is serving Satan, who is obviously a dude. And there's obviously yeah. this expectation that the witches are giving themselves sort of in this sexual way to him. And yet, in the TV series, every woman who is already pledged to the coven is complicit in that, if not actively trying to recruit women for the sexual pleasure of Satan, basically. Yeah. But in the comic, that doesn't seem to be the case. Like, it only seems to be Madam Satan who who feels this obligation to, to provide Sabrina for Satan himself. Yeah. Like, everyone else has their own reasons for deciding to be part of the coven, and there is much more of a sense of, I know I keep coming back to this idea of free will, but there's much more of a sense of free will, much more of a sense that you actually gain something from being part of this community. Mm -hmm. Whereas yeah. other than the fivesome, I don't know what you gain from from it in the television version. And it is, in the television version, it is such a predatory representation that I don't think exists in the comic, or at least I didn't read it in the comic. Yeah, I keep coming back to a conversation that one of the aunts had with Sabrina in the comic where she says, you can choose to pledge yourself to the Dark Lord and you'll get these powers and you'll you'll age slowly and you'll get this wonderful, you know, community within the coven, or you can choose to lead a mortal life and it'll be probably not as exciting, but it can still be a good life. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, there's this real yeah. sense that like the choice is a genuine one. Yeah, it's like, what do you want for your life? 
and that's where I come back, keep coming back to the fact that like I don't understand what the hell her struggle is in the in the TV version. (laughs) (laughs) It's the problem with making the linchpin of the human life your boyfriend, your high school boyfriend. Yes. I get it. It's young adult. You know, it's that first blush of love where you think, oh, maybe this relationship can go all the way. And Sabrina does have that in the graphic novel, but that's actually represented as a question mark in the graphic Mm -hmm. novel. Mm -hmm. Sorry, comic, Brenna. I apologize. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, it seems like the TV show doesn't trust that there isn't enough conflict. So they really have to ramp up this idea that everything is pivoting around Sabrina losing her free will if she does this. And well, the last couple of episodes of the season do pick up the pace. They become more interesting. They find ways of bringing the human characters in and they start to reveal that, oh, Sabrina actually is a witch. So we can get a bit more of a Scooby gang vibe going on it still ends up coming to a crux with this MacGuffin villain that gets called by the Madame Satan character because she wants to push Sabrina into signing her power over. And then the final image of season one is Sabrina's hair has gone completely white. She's totally sexed up in a bright red come do me dress and she's making eyes at Nick at the Academy. And you're like, oh, now she's going to be a bad bitch. Yep. Yeah, you get the distinct idea that the character has fundamentally changed. Yeah, so this is the conflict that we've been building up for 10 episodes, like 10 very long one hour plus episodes. Is her getting to like a sexualized place? Is that the metaphor that they were aiming for? I hope not. (laughs) Yeah, and part of this too is that I just find I'm not interested in Sabrina's story. I'm so much more interested in Prudence, and I'm so much more interested in the Madame Satan character. And I think partially it's just because these women are so liberated in their performances. Like Michelle Gomez and Taddy Gabrielle are just killing it whenever they're on stage. They're so dynamic and interesting. I'm like, why couldn't this be Prudence's show? And she's being tutored by (laughs) the Madame Satan character. (laughs) But I forget, we have to have a, you know, a cutie pie white girl in the lead. (laughs) Well, it just wouldn't be TV if we didn't have that. (laughs) What would we be interested in? I don't know. I can't even imagine. (laughs) I mean, I said that very, very dismissively. And I applaud the fact that, again, we've got a television show that's making deliberate aims to say, okay, we've got a black friend. We've got a gender nonconforming friend who is actually played by a gender nonconforming actor. That's the Susie character who's played by Mm -hmm. Lachlan Watson. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, there have been deliberate efforts made to diversify this cast to make them a little bit more contemporary. I still feel like at the center of it all, this is Sabrina's show, and I find she's boring, and I find Harvey's boring. Mm-hmm. Harvey's so boring. And so Yeah, boring. I love, I agree. I love the fact that we very clearly made efforts for representation on this show, but I want to see more from those characters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think, and that's, I mean, that's a common problem that we keep coming back to, right? Is that I was just listening to what we talked about with Divergent last week, and it's like, it's the exact same thing. It's, you cast good actors in interesting roles, you bring that diversity to the level of casting, and then you back off when it comes to, like, actually making them the important characters that we spend more of our time watching. That seems to be where the resistance still occurs. Yeah. I have to hope that the writers have realized what they've got because the tail end of the season does seem to suggest that Prudence will be a bigger factor in Sabrina's life. And of course, the final image is the four girls striding into the academy and Nick making goo-goo eyes at her. But then when you look at the promos for upcoming season two, I wasn't joking. They're absolutely saying like, oh, the big focus is now going to be the love triangle between Sabrina and Harvey and Nick. And I'm like, oh, good. No one has ever seen that story before. (laughs) How refreshing. Like, you could be doing a contemporary version of The Craft. You've got four girl witches who could rule the school and do really interesting things. But instead, yeah, let's go for our love triangle, for sure. (laughs) Can I tell you guys a great anecdote about uh, Roberto Aguirre's Casa before we we wrap things up today? Mm -hmm. Yes, please. Okay. 
So in 2003, so I think about 10 years before he was named chief creative officer at Archie Comics, he wrote this play, because he was a playwright before he wrote comics and before he did directing, Mm -hmm. uh, called Archie's Weird Fantasy. And it was a play that was, I think it premiered in Atlanta. It may have only played in Atlanta. Anyway, the whole premise of Archie's Weird Fantasy is that Archie comes out of the closet and moves to New York. (laughs) That's like the whole concept. Yeah. They tried to shut him down, right? The day before it was scheduled to open, they issued a cease and desist order. So they didn't actually sue him, but they threatened litigation. And I guess the artistic director of the theater said that Archie Comics thought that if Archie was portrayed as being gay, it would, quote, dilute and tarnish his image, end quote. Naturally. So Aguirre Sacasa was like, screw you. I don't care. He just changed the title to Weird Comic Book Fantasy instead of Archie's Weird Fantasy and changed the characters' names and left everything else exactly the same and opened as planned. Um, which I love, but I also love that within 10 years of that happening, he was chief creative officer of Archie Comics. I feel like that is the best story of how that should have gone. Yes. Oh my God. That's perfect at every possible step. Not right. just that he continued and put the play on, but hey, guess what? Guess what? I'm in charge now, Mafas. All of your properties, mine. And he's he's proven to have good instincts, right? Like he's taken the brand in some really interesting, challenging directions. I just feel like there's something that's inherently present in the comics that is unafraid of taking risks. Like Mm -hmm. killing your love interest in that first volume was amazing. I completely forgot about that. I audibly gasped when I reread it for this podcast because it's it is such a daring. great plot point. Yeah, you never expect it to happen. And then not even the end of the first volume two, like issue two, issue two of your brand new series, you kill off the boyfriend. It's amazing. <laughs> I don't think I would be talking negatively about the TV show if I had have seen any kind of willingness to do something. I'm, I mean, I'm not saying you got to kill off one of your main characters, but... Uh, kind of am. <laughs> I feel like the TV show is playing it safe. Yes, yes, I agree. Completely. I agree. Which is all the weirder given that it's a Netflix series. Like, I don't understand. Right. When you have the freedom to do anything mm-hmm. and you choose not to, it just feels like you're limiting yourself intentionally. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get it. I think the series could have been so much more than it is. Yeah. Yeah. And to say, I don't hate the series. I do enjoy watching (laughs) it because it's, you know, YA occult is like crack for me. (laughs) Like, it's just so much fun to watch teenagers with their superpowers and kind of wish that I was 16 with superpowers because 16 would have gone a lot better, I think, if I could have, you know, moved stuff with my mind. Definitely. (laughs) But when you compare it to the source material, the comic is just so brave in ways that the series isn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, fingers crossed for season two. Yeah, I'm still looking forward to it. I'm going to check it out. I'm hoping that now they've kind of gotten themselves established with season one, they'll have a better understanding of what worked and what didn't work and where they have the freedom to go creatively. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. that it takes a few steps forward. Mm -hmm. And if nothing else, we'll always have the fun little Easter egg of trying to figure out what language Aunt Zelda's newspaper is in whenever we see her reading. (laughs) (laughs) It's apparently different every single time you see her reading a newspaper. Is it really? Yeah. That's cool. Now I'm going to pay more attention to her newspapers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we talk about where we're going next, Emily, where can people keep track of you and whatever you're up to? Wait, 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 wait. We didn't do YA bingo. (gasps) Right. Sorry. Oh my gosh. (laughs) YA bingo. Okay. There's a lot of them this week. That's why I'm saying. (laughs) Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Emily, do you have a YA bingo for Chilling Adventures of Sabrina? I do. Multiple holiday set pieces. We get to play Mm. around with Halloween and Thanksgiving. And if we're counting the Christmas episode, then with Christmas. Mm -hmm. And her sweet 16th birthday. Mm -hmm. Yes. That counts totally. Okay, fantastic. And Brenna, you had mentioned Secret Shakespeare. Secret Shakespeare, definitely. Activism exclamation mark in sort of the worst format. Allusions to other YA in the comic, at least, with Betty and Veronica showing up, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I had one other. Oh, yeah, dead parents, of course. Dead parents. Always with the dead parents. And can it be a pervy teacher if it's... I mean, I think she's a pervy teacher. (laughs) Oh, you mean like Madame Satan? And- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
She's totally a pervy teacher. <laughs> There's one piece in, I think it's the second last episode of the TV show, where she actually pretends to be a sexually active high school girl so that she can lure a jock out, and then she murders him so that she can use his blood. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Oh, and I had one other one, but it's a stretch. Although it sound, doesn't sound like it's a stretch for volume two or for season two, but I was going to say a love triangle, but I specifically meant in the very first issue and episode and the love triangle is between sabrina and harvey and satan (laughs) nice one (laughs) fantastic i will add in one more which is frenemies because of course we've got prudence and sabrina both hate each other and repeatedly try to kill each other but they ultimately also come together to do a variety of different kinds of spells right nice yeah okay good ya (laughs) nice okay Back to the original question. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter. I'm at at Horrorella blog and I love chatting about everything. So come find me. Yeah. Now that I know that you're all over the YA stuff too, it's like, you're not going to be able to get rid of me. Besties! (laughs) And do listen to Dead Ringers Pod as well, because of course, that's a great double bill of horror movies that have complementary but not always like-minded approaches to the horror genre. Thank you. We have a lot of fun recording that. So um, we've got a couple new episodes coming out in the next couple of weeks, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Excellent. And Brenna? Nice. Uh, You can find me at Brenna C. Gray on Twitter. Joe, how about you? I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And remember that you can always use the hashtag HKHSPod to chat with us on Twitter. We're always eager to chat on the hashtag, find out what we've gotten right and wrong. And remember that you should definitely, because tomorrow is my birthday, go and rate and <laughs> review us on iTunes, please. Yes. And if you have something longer to say, you can always send us an email at HKHSPod at gmail.com. So, Brenna, do you want to know where we're going next? I always want to know where we're going next. (laughs) We're going to keep some of the magic, but we're going to remove the horror, and we're going to dabble into some fairy tales. So we're going to check out Gail Carson Levine's 1997 book, Ella Enchanted, and then we're going to watch the movie from 2004. So it's celebrating its 15th anniversary as of the week that that episode will drop. So, Ella Enchanted. You're so much more in my comfort zone all of a sudden. I'm so happy. <laughs> yes, we're, we're firmly into curses and fairy tales land next week. And until then, I'll see you on the page, Joe. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, Emily. That was super fun. That was so fun. Thank you so much for having me.